0: And if you would please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3 Our scripture reading is James 3 verses 13 to 18 James 3:13 to 18 and then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 6 to 16 1 Samuel 18 verses 6 to 16 Brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the very word of God. There is nothing more important than you can do right now than to give your full attention to God's word as it is being read. James 3:13 to 16. 13 to 18 rather. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel 18, where we will consider verses 6 to 16. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul." So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy Infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, we pray that you would guide us now as your word is about to be preached. We pray that you would continue, O Lord, as you have while the word was read to hear the word preached. We pray, dear Lord, that you would convict us of sin. That you would remind us of our duty to glorify you. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be exalted. That we would worship you, even now, through the preaching of your word. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Now last week, in the sermon on the passage having to do with David's reception by King Saul, you may remember that we we made note of the fact that Saul's reception of David when he came before Saul after Goliath had been uh, slain by David, that, that Saul's reception of David seemed to be a little cold considering what David had just accomplished. Jonathan, Saul's son and the former inheritor of his father's throne, reacted to David's victory by making a covenant of friendship with him, one that would remain unbroken until his death at the very end of 1 Samuel. But Saul, who should have been most pleased that this dangerous threat to Israel had been eliminated, did not utter a single word of gratitude for what David had done. He didn't even praise the Lord for what David had done. And the only apparent favorable sign in last week's passage that that David might have received from Saul, that he approved of what he had done, was that he set David over the men of war. Well, in our passage this morning, we're given the reason why Saul's reception of David was so chilly It was because of an encounter that Saul had with the women who had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul while he, David, and all the men were returning from the Valley of Elah following Goliath's defeat. And so what does that mean for us? It means that the author of 1 Samuel, he's taken a step back in time here. This is a convention that takes place in in writing and in movies all of the time. You're presented with a scene, you're given a brief scene of some sort of action, and then there's a little bit of backstory that's given to you in the next section. And that's what's happening here. We're going to get to why it is that this is the case in a few moments. But trust me here, if you will, just bear with me until I can try to plead the case a little more, that the author has taken a step back in time, just a brief step back in time. First, he reported what David did immediately following his fight with the Philistine, Then he reported David's reception by the king, and now he reports the events that took place prior to that reception. And so he's inverted the chronology just a tiny bit here. The time marker is found in verse 6. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. This clearly indicates that this event actually took place before David meets with Saul. And the ESV translates the Hebrew very closely here. Saul's less than enthusiastic reception of David in the preceding verses now makes sense because Saul encountered the women prior to that reception. And the overall impact in the author's structure is to more fully set Saul's reaction in contrast with Jonathan's, who understood that God was with David and was not threatened by that fact. I want to set this before you today as we work our way through the sermon. This is sort of the propositional statement that we always have. This is what I would ask you to consider as we work our way through. Righteous fear leads to right worship of God. Unrighteous fear leads to jealousy and rage. I'll say that one more time. Righteous fear leads to right worship of God. Unrighteous fear leads to jealousy and rage. The sermon, as is so often is the case, is divided into three sections. The first section I've titled, Unjustified Jealousy. The second section, Unmitigated Success. And the third section, Uninformed Awe. i to throw a bone every so often to those of you who love Alliteration. So here it is today. I don't know when it will come back. The first section, unjustified jealousy. The second section, unmitigated success. And the third section, uninformed awe. So let's look at the first section now, unjustified jealousy. Now even though the word jealous or jealousy, it's not used in our passage this morning, it is clear that Saul, seemingly in an instant, becomes jealous of David because of what happens with the women dancing and singing. But why, might, why are we characterizing it as unjustified jealousy? Well, first we need to note that not all forms of jealousy are wrong. Not all forms of jealousy are unjustified or sinful. We heard the words of the Ten Commandments, in which God says that he is a jealous God, And so, if jealousy is an attribute, if it's a characteristic used by God about himself, then not all manifestations of jealousy can be sinful. It is possible for a husband or wife to be jealous for their spouse. Say they see their spouse flirting with another person. It's possible for that husband or wife to be jealous and yet not sin. Now, they may go on to sin, but jealousy is not inherently sinful. Now it is plain in our passage that Saul's jealousy is not of the sinless persuasion because it leads him to try and kill David almost immediately. But what might not be so plain is that his jealousy was predicated on a misunderstanding on Paul's part. If you're like me, you've always read this passage in such a way that it's understandable why Saul became jealous. Because, after all, the women of Israel came pouring out of their cities all, from all over Israel, and they said, sure, Saul had killed some people, but David killed so many more, orders of magnitude more. Now, most of us would become jealous if we experienced something similar to what, Paul, what Saul experienced. It wouldn't make it right, but it somewhat justifies Saul's sentiments in our minds. Well, yeah, I can understand. I'd be a little jealous. I'm the king, but David's getting all of the glory. But as one commentator convincingly argues, the way Saul understands what the women were singing was the complete opposite of what they meant. Now his position might be the minority interpretation, but he's fairly persuasive in arguing his point. I'm going to quote to you from his argument. I can't say it any better than this. What Saul hears the women singing is, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands, tens of thousands. What the women really say and mean to say is Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They have used a centuries-old stylistic figure from the art of poetry in which a number used in the first half verse is augmented by one unit or ten or a hundred in the second. Now this pattern is used, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination an abomination to Him. And then uh, the author of Proverbs could, goes on and he lists seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. In the case of verse 7 in our passage, Saul and David are a fixed pair because the author has used synonymous parallelism. And so what this means, the women, what they meant was Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his thousands too, but it's not the way that, that people operated in that day. They had to go from one, one form, one, one amount to a greater amount. It's just the way that it worked. And so rather than being, being an insult to Saul, it is lavish praise heaped on both men by the women singing and dancing. They, it seems, even more than Saul, recognize the great victory that has been accomplished in the defeat of Goliath. And notice that the author himself understands the intent of the women. Verse 6 says that they came out of the, all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul. It doesn't say they came out to meet King Saul and David. These women were jubilant They were overjoyed. They were ecstatic. Because their king had been victorious in battle. And his champion had done well. And so they wanted to see their king who was returning victoriously from that field of battle. But even if Saul had rightly understood what the women intended... He may well still have been insulted and provoked to jealousy because they dared to put David on par with him, their king. This wasn't the women's intention, however, to belittle Saul. But we read in verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David his tens, his ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And so though Saul doesn't know, Who is going to inherit the kingdom after he uh, is deceased? He thinks David has nothing else to gain. He's got everything else but the kingdom. And so from that day, verse 9 says Saul eyed David. He looked at him, what we say nowadays, with a jaundiced eye. He was jealous of him, he was afraid of him, he perceived David as a threat. And that's why he would not let David return to his father's house. And then when he couldn't bear David being in his presence any longer, that's why he made him a commander in the army. Now, Verses 11 and 12 give a, the quick account of what happened the next day. After the ancient equivalent of a ticker tape parade, we read in verse 12 that a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Now, In the past when this would happen, what, what, what would take place? David would... He would go to Saul, he would pull out his his lyre, his harp, he would start to play it. Saul would calm down, he was soothed, his anxieties were gone. He would be refreshed, the harmful spirit would depart. But not this time. We read that this time Saul had his spear in his hand and he hurled the spear at David, trying to pin David to the wall. We might add, like an insect to a board. But David was able to evade him twice, verse 11 says. And verse 12 gives us the reason for Saul's behavior in addition to the harmful spirit. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Now We observed this a few months back, but it bears repeating. Having a fear of man instead of a fear of God most often leads to at least a couple of different outcomes depending on the person. If you have a fear of man, either you will be so debilitated by your fear of man that you typically refuse to stand up to anyone, especially those who are challenging you, confronting you, getting in your face, or your fear of man creates within you the desire to dominate other people, bullying them into submission to your will. Well, I guess you can sort of guess what Saul's response to having a fear of man is. His impulse that results from his fear of man is to dominate David. He wants to dominate him specifically by killing him. He wants to put an end to David. He wants to eliminate the threat. And so to use the language from our scripture, scripture reading from James chapter 3, verse 16, from the seedbed of jealousy and selfish ambition in Saul there has come disorder and every vile practice and it only gets worse for, for Saul from here. Now, what we know, especially those of us who've read through to the end of 1 Samuel, what we know is that Saul's position as king, his position wasn't threatened. God didn't tell Saul that he was going to kick him out of being king, that he was going to throw him off of the throne and replace him with someone else. He just wasn't giving his kingdom, he wasn't giving his reign to his son. He would be king until his death. But Saul, like many fathers in power, I think this is perhaps a characteristic or an attribute of fathers, perhaps of mothers too, but at least we see it more often with fathers. He wanted to build a dynasty. And David was now enemy number one because he he saw David as the chief threat to his dynasty building intentions. Let's look at the second section of our sermon this morning, Unmitigated Success. As we saw already, Saul removed David from his presence. He could no longer stand for David to be in the same room as him, even if David had been formerly able to calm Saul down with his music. Now he sent David away from him. He wanted him out of his sight. But this proved to be a bad move on Saul's part as well. Because by all accounts, David had success wherever he went. Verse 16 says, But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and he came in before them. Now this is shorthand for saying that he was victorious in battle. He went out with the army to fight against their enemies and conspicuously returned in victory. There there were seasons of war fighting for the Israelites, for ancient peoples in general. I was recently reading uh, an account, it goes back to my reading up on Kit Carson uh, from a few weeks ago, but the Navajo Indians, who were one of his chief uh, opponents as he was trying to, to clear the West, they had a season when they would go out and fight. And there was a period of time when they would return to their home base, they would recoup and, and replenish and restore. And then uh, then when the spring would come, they would go out and fight again. And, and this is not so different from what Israel would do. And so the shorthand there, uh, going out and coming back, he went out, he came in before them. He's going out to fight, and then he comes back in victory. He's not hiding. He's not trying to sneak back into camp or sneak back into the city. He comes, comes in victoriously, and the people are happy. They love David in Israel and Judah. Well, even though the women sang the song about David right after he had killed Goliath, their hyperbolic song about David striking down his 10,000s was showing itself to be prophetic. And in next week's sermon, Lord willing, the passage next week, we'll see this beginning where where David is, is in a sense, beginning to count coup. He's taking people down. The numbers are racking up. (laughs) It may well be that Saul was hoping to send David to his death by making him a commander of of a thousand men. And if so, it would serve as as a sad foreshadowing of David's own behavior later on, when David most certainly sent Uriah to his death on the front lines. But despite Saul's efforts to remove David from his presence, the stories of his successes in battle would always make their way back to Saul's ears, only to torment, torment him further. The more David succeeds, the more Saul tries to kill him, the more David succeeds. Saul's jealousy of David fills him with a hatred and rage toward David. These were men who were not from the same tribe, of course, but they were part of the same nation. They they were on one another's side. David's victories meant victories for Israel, which meant victories for Saul. But Saul wanted no one to have glory but himself. Now this is a struggle for fallen human beings, which as a category would include all of us, each of us here. We need to be aware that we have an inordinate desire to be regarded as significant by others. We want to be looked up to by others. And when that gets out of control in some people, they try to destroy those who they perceive as threats. For Saul, that took the form of heaving a spear at David, trying to pin him against a wall. In our day, the result of extreme jealousy might be less murderous in most instances, but still devastating to people who become the target. And perhaps you have been the target of another person's jealousy and rage. But it has been this way throughout history. I think that a similar desire for significance and jealousy were in play in Jesus' lifetime as well. The more he succeeded in doing exactly what his father had for him to do, the more the religious leaders in Judaism hated him. Even more so than with David, the father was with his son. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they hated him for it. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 says that when Jesus was a boy, after his parents had, had lost him, after they'd gone up to Jerusalem and they were going back to, to Judea, they had to go back to Jerusalem and search for him. They found him in the temple. After that, Luke two fifty two says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And this was before his public ministry began. But he was already having success in whatever he was given to do. So that at his baptism, which marked the beginning of his public ministry, God the Father said of him publicly, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus did everything perfectly. Everything as his Father had directed him to do. He never deviated. His entire life, whether it's regarded As such by those outside of the church, his entire life was success after success after success. Because success for Jesus and success for those who follow Jesus is measured by what God approves of, by what God has called us to do. And so Jesus Christ, he honored his parents, but more importantly, he honored his heavenly father throughout his entire life. He always did what was right, and so he succeeded in all that he did. The religious leaders of his day could not abide this. He was a threat to them and to their system. They were afraid of Jesus, but not in a God-honoring way. They They weren't afraid of him because they regarded him as God when he made it clear that that he was the Son of God, when he made it clear by saying things like, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except me, he was threatening not only them, but their entire system of religion. And so in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes' minds, Jesus Christ had to be destroyed. He was enemy number one. This leads us to The third section of the sermon, Uninformed Awe. The Bible makes it clear that you and I, all of humanity, were were created to worship Him. But when our first parents rebelled in the garden, wanting to be like God themselves, that innate desire to worship God was twisted. It was perverted into a desire to worship ourselves, to be worshipped by others. The Bible makes it clear that fear is a component of worship. It's a component in our worship of God. Even though we have been adopted into His family, we still approach God from, uh, in worship with reverence and awe. Now there's a sense in which it can be said that human beings worship that of which they are afraid. And that's why I believe that worshipers in so many false religions make idols in the form of scary animals or monstrous beasts. They're afraid of that thing and they believe that by by fashioning an idol in its form after its likeness that they can somehow subdue it. They They can make it their friend. We read in 1 Samuel 18 verse 12 that Saul was afraid of David. And this was the case because, at verse 12 says, the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Now, our passage doesn't say this about Saul, but as we all know, fear can make a person tremble. Fear of a, of a situation in which you're entering into, into, a, into conflict and you know that you're going into it. You're having trouble with someone at work. You're having trouble with a with a family member and you go in and you know you've got to confront them and you have fear and you're trembling. Well, that happens from time to time. And a person can have almost a religious experience when in the throes of fear. Verse 15 of our passage also says, And when Saul saw that he, that is David, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Now the word that's translated fearful awe in verse 15 is used only three times in the Old Testament. Once in Numbers chapter 22, verse 3, where the people of Moab are described as being overcome with fear of the people of Israel. The second time is in our passage, in verse 15. And the third time is in Psalm 22, verse 23, where we read this, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. That's the word, in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. The word that's used of Saul, Saul, is used in Psalm 22 verse 23 in reference to how we worship the Lord. With reverence and awe, with fear and awe. Fear properly leads to worship when it's directed at the right person. But Saul's fear and awe of David, it was uninformed, wasn't it? Not so much that Saul was uninformed about David, which led him to fear David, but that Saul was uninformed about God. And Saul's lack of information, his lack of understanding about God, this is what led him into trouble after trouble, problem after problem. Now I think that it's mostly correct to say that the less we know about something we perceive as dangerous, the more we fear it. We see this in the scientific realm all the time. The more we come to know about some sort of problem or other, whether it's a disease or some sort of mechanical problem or some sort of phenomenon out in nature, or or the beasts of the field, the creatures of the air and of the deep, the more that we come to know about these things, the less that we tend to fear them. But that is not the case when it comes to our knowledge of God, or that's not the way it should be. The more that we come to know him, the more that we know about him through the study of his word, through the study of of historical doctrines of the church, the more that we should fear him and be in awe of him and desire to bow down and worship him. And the more that we do these things, the more that we know God, the the better that we come to understand him knowing that we can never comprehensively understand God, the less we we will be in fear of others especially his image bearers. And for those who belong to Christ, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that is what we will do if imperfectly in this life. We'll never have a full comprehension of God or a perfect comprehension of God. Our, our, our minds are affected by sin. We don't understand God as, 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 as well as we will when we go to be with him in heaven. But as we understand Him more, it should cause us to want to worship Him more. But others, others who want to be worshipped, who want other human beings created in the image of God to bow down to them, who want other people not to have any other gods before them, those people have a jealous rage toward the living and true God. And they will be like Saul in his actions toward David. And we can see this playing out in this this very day if the reports that we're getting are accurate within our own country. It seems that there are some folks in Portland who have taken to burning Bibles in the streets. And and on the one hand, some people are saying that they're just destroying a book. That that the ideas that are contained within that book are what's important. And those ideas, those concepts, the teachings of the Bible, they can't be destroyed just because someone throws them in a a fire. And, and, And there may be something to that. That's why it's so important for us to know our Bibles, right? It's at the end of Fahrenheit 451 where the people are in the woods. They're hiding. All of the books have been burned, but they've all memorized different uh, passages from books and even from the Bible. It's important for us to know God's Word so that if we don't have a physical copy of it, we have it stored up in our minds. But on the other hand... It seems that their hatred isn't directed at the book itself so much as their hatred is directed at the one about whom the book testifies. And that is the problem, isn't it? If they really thought that the book, the Bible that they're burning was nothing, then they wouldn't burn it. They're offended by the fact that it testifies to the the true and living God. And their destruction of the Bible... It's a raised fist in defiance and and rebellion against the God of the Bible. But this problem is not out there in the world either. We can't do justice to God's word by simply saying that the problem is out there. The problem is over there on the left coast in Portland. By God's grace, we live in Texas. We don't have that problem. Because the reality is that each of us, each of us, is not immune to jealousy and rage. Each of us has within us the ability to grow, to to fan the flames of jealousy and rage toward another person. Ministers, I've seen it, ministers can become jealous of how well other ministers and their churches are doing. People in the church become jealous of the gifts that God has given to other Christians in the same church. And so to borrow from Paul's analogy, when he dealt with this very challenge, we can be jealous of someone who is an eye in the body of Christ, but we're just the big toe. Man, what I wouldn't give to be an eye in the body of Christ. But here I am stuck at the very bottom, getting stepped on, smelly, hidden, concealed by shoes. If this is the case... If we've become jealous of other people because of the gifts that the Lord has given them and the way that they employ it in the service of the Lord to bring Him glory, we have lost the plot. We've forgotten how wonderful it is that we are in the body of Christ at all, even if it is that we're the big toe or the heel. The fact that we are the recipients of God's gifts, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is proof of the fact that God is with us, that we're with Him, that we are a part of His body, that we will be with Him forever. And so God's gifts to His people is proof that He is with His church. And so we're blessed in this body, this local particular body, with a a variety of gifts a variety of talents, abilities. And each of those gifts is different, but they all complement one another. And they're all intended to be for the benefit of one another. And so this should give us comfort instead of making us jealous. God is with His church. And so His church will find success in everything that God has called us to do to the glory of His holy name and for the good of His people. Brothers and sisters, if you can so orient your life in such a way that you have a proper fear of God instead of an improper, unrighteous fear of man, no matter what part of the body of Christ you are, you will bring him the glory that he has intended for you to bring to him. You will be able to sing his praises. You can glorify His name, and you can edify one another. You can encourage each other. You can spur one another on. Bear have that in mind right now. I don't believe that our church is racked with jealousy. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I don't believe that it is. I don't believe that we're raging at one another, angry with each other, jealous of one another. But we are, at this point in the life of our church... More separate from one another than we have been in the past. We have some in our church who aren't able to be here with us in the way that they were in the past and hopefully will be in the future. But God has still gifted each and every one of us to bring glory to his name and to be of benefit to one another so that his church glorifies him in all that we do, so that his church has success. And everything that the Lord has called us to do. Brothers, God has called us to a right and proper fear of Him. Not an improper and unrighteous fear of man. Make it your desire, by God's grace, to fear the Lord. So that you can more properly, more rightly worship the Lord in all that you do. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you have gifted us in so many ways. We thank you, Lord, that you have created us to worship you and you have made us able to worship you by the power of your Spirit who has brought us to life. Lord, we pray that you would give us the desire, the strength, the ability, and every occasion to worship you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that we would not be plagued as a people, as individuals, by petty rivalries and jealousies and anger. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us not to have selfish ambition, but the desire to put others before ourselves. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make us fit to worship you and live lives that encourage one another in our walk with Christ. We pray this all in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.